Oh, so glad we could uh, finish the book of Genesis together. So, uh, you know, hearing that song and the reason why we, we picked that song is we were thinking a lot about stories. You know, the, the, the book of Genesis is just this collection of, of life stories. And we can, like Sarah said earlier, we can get some things, some modern lessons uh, out of these life stories. I'm going to put my water over real quick. Is that cool with you guys? Put my water down? All right, cool. Uh, so uh, we're thinking about stories. And so uh, it, it made me think about this year, you know, I decided I was going to read more um, biographies. And I started asking around to, to people I knew, and I was telling them, hey, give me the biographies that I should read, like the really interesting ones, the ones uh, about people and historical uh, happenings that I might not know about. Now, before I go on, I should say I had one rule. The rule was this. Please don't make me read any autobiographies. Autobiographies are the worst. <laughs> they are so boring. Don't argue with me on this. You will not win. Okay, but biographies, when someone else writes a story, oh, that's, that's what I want to read, okay? So I read a lot of great books because of all these recommendations. I want to share a few with you. First off, I read the biography of Steve Jobs by Walter Isaacson. Loved that book. Uh, Team of Rivals by Doris Kearns Goodwin about Abraham Lincoln and his cabinet. Uh, obviously, I read the Ron Chernow book on Alexander Hamilton, although I was a little bit bummed that not one person rapped throughout the entire book. <laughs> but one of the, the main uh, books that people kept pointing to was The Years of Lyndon Johnson by Robert A. Caro. Now, the people who told me about this book were always really quick to be like, dude, just be warned. It is a slow read, and it goes deep. But I'm the guy who loves deep dives on things. Like, it's all I do in my life. So I begin reading this book, <clears throat> The Years of Lyndon Johnson, and I'm into it. I read about uh, President Johnson, and I read about his childhood growing up in the Texas Hill Country. I read about his relationship with both of his parents and, and with the legacy of his forefathers in, in Texas politics. I read about uh, his time teaching severely under-resourced Hispanic children at the segregated Wellhausen School in Catula, outside of San Antonio. Then, I read about him going to Washington, D.C. <gasps> okay, here we go. About how he starts as a congressional aide, then through pure drive and ambition and energy, he becomes a congressman. And then about how he recognizes the logical next step in his story, which is to be a U.S. senator. And so he decides to run for senator of the state of Texas in 1941. Okay. I start looking at the book, though. I start looking how far I've gotten and how much is left. And you guys, can I tell you something? I'm on page 2,800 of a 3,000-page book. Right? Now listen, I know some things about Lyndon Johnson's life. I know he's going to be vice president, then president. I know he's going to have a formative hand in, in passing the Civil Rights Act of 1964. But I, I'm starting to feel this as I'm reading it. I'm getting so tense. I go, you know, unless this author speeds up the storytelling significantly, we are not going to get there. <laughs> All right, so I'm reading this book. And it starts to look like LBJ is going to lose this Senate campaign. And I start getting concerned 
about this book I've invested so much time and so much energy in. Like, I'm starting to get grumpy about this book. And, check this out, he does lose the Senate campaign. And then, the book ends. Hmm. All right. Story over. Okay. I'm so mad. I go to Amazon and I find out what's up with this stupid book. And, uh, <laughs> can I tell you something? Can I tell you something about this book? This book is book one in a five-book series. <laughs> Hold on. Gets better. Book one comes out 1982. Book five has not come out yet. <laughs> this author has not finished telling the story, and who even knows when this fifth book is going to come out. I, God, I hope I'm alive for this book when it comes out. But here's the important thing, all right? I know there is more story. We are not done yet. All right. It's, it's frustrating when we think the story is over, but we don't think it's right, right? It's frustrating when we think everything's going to be all right, and all of a sudden it just isn't. And we start to think, is this it? Story's over? Really? And think about it. We, we try so hard to be successful, to move forward in our lives, in our jobs, and our growth, and to feel like we're getting there, and then having it just fall apart in our own lives, in our own stories, that hurts. I remember a season of my life where I worked really hard. I invested a lot of time and energy into my job, and I felt like it was in the right place, and all of a sudden, things just went south. And in the middle of what was supposed to be the brightest and the best season of my life and my family's life, I found myself all of a sudden without anything. Just boom, everything just taken away. And I remember how that felt. I remember how it felt to see future plans disintegrate, how it felt to just stop and look around and go, is this it? Is, is the story just over? That's all there is? And, and I'm willing to bet that some of you have been through it too, right? Maybe you lost a, a job or you had to go through a difficult career transition later in life and what was once a clear path forward, a bright future is just gone. Maybe a marriage or, or an important relationship ended and you're just left holding the pieces going, geez, is this really all there is? The story just ends here? Maybe a poor decision was made and it sent you down a path that you were not expecting to go down and you look around and you're like, this is not where the story was supposed to end. But there is nothing left here. What happens now? Like, like Sarah was saying earlier, we're, we're coming close to the end of our story, or stories, in the book of Genesis. And we're going to spend our time today reading the last story in Genesis. It's about a man named Joseph. And we're going to see how, at a few different spots in his narrative, it appears as though his story is over. Now, we have come a long way in Genesis, right? We started with Abraham, or sorry, started with Adam, Adam to Noah, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we saw last week Jacob encounters God and has his name changed to Israel. And we're told that from his offspring, from his sons, 
are going to come this nation of Israel, right? This is a story of the existence of God's people, Israel. And this is where they're going to come from. And so we pick up this week, we meet Jacob's sons. Now, like we said, Jacob has 12 sons. That's them. Okay, but Jacob has one favorite son. That's Joseph. All right? And him having, him having that one favorite son is going to be the issue, the inciting force behind where the story takes us. You see, like I said, Joseph is Jacob's favorite son. He's the firstborn son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. And from the very beginning, Joseph has favor. We're told that Jacob loves him and dotes on him. He gives this son, one of his youngest children, he gives him favor and status. He even gives him a rope. See that rope? It is, this is the robe, right? We've heard about this robe. The story calls it the ornate robe. In other areas, we hear it called the coat of many colors or the robe of many colors. Some biblical scholars have even called it the amazing technicolor dream coat. <laughs> All right, side note. Side note. Uh, I told Sophia, who, who was leading you in worship a few minutes ago, I told her I needed uh, multiple songs from the Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat soundtrack performed before I taught, but I was, I was kidding. Um, but, but, <laughs> but check this out. Um, check this out. This coat, this coat is more than a coat, all right? It is a symbol. It is given from Jacob to his son Joseph, and it is a symbol of how much more status and power and favor he has and will continue to have over his 10 older brothers. And that starts a subtle, quiet civil war between his brothers and him. All right? So this war is going to start like every sibling rivalry does. How does it start? Joseph starts telling on his brothers. <gasps> Look, read this out. Joseph... A young man of 17 was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Ooh. Okay. Here's what's happening in the room. Those of you who were the younger brother or sister in your family are like, okay. They were doing something wrong, probably, so of course he had to tell on them. What's the big deal? Those of us who are older brothers and sisters are like, <laughs> snitches get stitches. <laughs> okay, so that starts it. Dad's favorite son from his favorite wife with the cool coat that dad would never give us is now a narc. All right. Okay. All right. So by itself, that should be enough to set it off, right? But check it out. Joseph steps it up a notch. He decides, you know these dreams I've been having? The, the dreams that are, are showing me that I am destined to rule over my brothers? I should tell them about those dreams. <laughs> right? Like, I would do, yeah, of course. So now he's like, guys, 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 gather around, gather around. Take a knee, take a knee. Craziest dream I had last night. Check this out. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright and your sheaves gather on mine. And what did it do? 
bowed down to it. Okay, interesting dream. Needless to say, this does not bridge the chasm between Joseph and his brothers, okay? In fact, it makes it bigger, okay? Then he has another dream. Okay, he has another dream. Again, if you're the younger brother or sister in this room, you're like, great, he should tell them. It'd be weird not to tell them. And the older brothers and sisters here are like, oh, God, he's going to tell them. He's going to tell them. Oh, my gosh. Uh, side note, those of you who are the only child are like, this is boring. This story is not even about me. <laughs> but look, then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Okay, all right. Now even his dad is like, Joseph, you, you have to chill. You sound crazy right now. Okay, can, can we stop for a moment here? Let's just stop for a moment here because I want us to think about this. Joseph might be justified in all this stuff he's doing and saying, okay? Or maybe he's brash and hot-headed and arrogant, okay? Or maybe it's both, Right? Like, that's the beauty of this story. It's like our stories, right? We are not perfect. And we have things that happen to us that are unfair and cruel and without reason. And we also have things happen to us that someone else would look at and go, yeah, you sort of had that coming. Sheaves of grain bowing. You just told him that? What? You know. So, all right, we're going to get back to that. We go on to read. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them. And it says... They saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to attack him. Okay. They take him. They beat him. They steal his robe. They throw him into a well. Okay. That escalated quickly. Then it gets worse. They decide to sell him into slavery. Okay. But what are they going to tell his dad? Check this out. Then they get Joseph's robe. Okay. Slaughter a goat. Yeah, okay. Dipped the robe in blood, took the robe back to the father, said, hey, this, I think this is Joseph's. And Joseph says, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. They make his dad think he's dead. Okay. So if you're Joseph, this is your low. So far. Everything has been taken from you. You're alone. You're captive. The people who love you they think you're dead. People who hate you have made sure you will never be heard from again. I want to ask you this. What are you thinking? What's going through your mind right now? I imagine it's got to be some combination of what an awful injustice that has happened to me and, wow, I must have done something really bad to deserve this or whatever. But there is no doubt you're thinking, it, wait, is this story over? Is this all there is? Is my story over? I want to guess something about the people with me in this room. Can I do that? Or, or if you're watching this live right now or, or later after today, can I just venture a guess and say that most of us have been here before? Pain and sudden change and isolation, it happens. It happens to all of us. Maybe to varying degrees, but let's not even do that, right? For a moment, don't even compare your pain or your low point 
to someone else's. We have all experienced this. And that is our first lesson we can take away from this story. Here it is. Bad things are going to happen to us no matter what. Bad things are going to happen to us no matter what, okay? Things are going to happen to us that make us think, that convince us that our story is over. Like the good part is done. The potential, the hope we had that good things are coming, that the future is bright, gone. And sometimes they're going to come as a result of poor choices we've made. Sometimes they're going to come out of nowhere and blindside us. But, but bad things are going to happen. Okay, that's all. let's all stand up and pray. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Stories are not over yet. All right. We read that Joseph is sold into slavery. And that from there, he's sent to prison. And then in prison, something funny happens. His past talent, the one that got him into trouble interpreting dreams, comes up again. And before long, he starts to make friends with the prisoners in captivity alongside him. And two of those friends in particular were in the inner circle of the Pharaoh, the ruler of all Egypt. He begins to make friends with people who know Pharaoh. And he begins to interpret the dreams of those friends, and, ready for this, the dreams start coming true. And he says to one of the friends who's about to be released, hey, 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 tell Pharaoh about me, okay? Get me out of here. And his friend is like, yeah, no, totally, of course, of course. And what happens? The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. <laughs> Again, Joseph is abandoned, forgotten. Few years later, Pharaoh starts having dreams, and they're bad dreams. And Pharaoh is so disturbed, he's so concerned about these dreams that he starts asking everyone around him, his advisors, his people, to help him interpret these dreams. And we read in chapter 41, Joseph's old friend, who was released and then forgot about Joseph, goes to Pharaoh and says, um, hey, remember when you put us in Prison a few years ago? Yeah, okay, so this is weird. But there was this guy, he might be able to tell you what these dreams mean. So they bring Joseph out of prison. And they bring him before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh goes, I was told you're the best interpreter of dreams. And listen to what Joseph says. Joseph then answered Pharaoh, saying, it has nothing to do with me. God will give Pharaoh an answer for his own good. Joseph has learned something while in captivity. He's learned to be humble. Remember who he was a few short years ago? He's bragging about his dreams to his brothers, like, look at my coat, woo! Talking about, you guys all know you're going to be bound to me, right? Woo! Okay, but his journey, the story of his life that God has him on, is growing him a little bit. His character is developing. Even though he's been the victim of injustice, even though he's been lied about and accused and backstabbed and forgotten by nearly every single person he's come into contact with, God is shaping him. God is forming him. We read this. We can almost picture Joseph saying, you know what, five, six years ago, I would have jumped at the chance to show you how much I know. But now I need you to understand, any way I help you is not because of me or my wisdom, it's God's doing. 
And in this, we're gonna find our second lesson. And it's this. Even at the lowest point of your story, God is still working. God is still working. You're going to be abandoned and accused, but God is still working. You're going to have reason to become bitter and vindictive, but God is still working. God is still working. Think about it. In this story, God is at work in the details. We see God send dreams to Pharaoh they need interpreting. We see God connecting Joseph to people who know his gift, know his skill, know what he's capable of. At the same time, we see God is also at work, where? Inside Joseph's heart. We see it in Joseph's humility and perspective he's gained, the way he answers Pharaoh, the way he talks to Pharaoh. See, when, when we believe, when we truly believe that our story is being told with the utmost care but by a divine author who knows us and loves us and is working on our behalf, when we believe that, we can know and we can trust that our story isn't over yet. We can look at these circumstances that to someone else would look like the end and we can know, oh, no, no, there's still more. The story isn't over yet. So what happens? Joseph is brought before Pharaoh and immediately is like, huh, here's what your dream means. So they're here. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Okay, now he has Pharaoh's attention. And he knows what to do. Look at this. He says, hey, there are seven good years coming. During those seven years, save some of your grain. Then when the actual seven years of the bad stuff starts, when the seven year of famine starts, you'll have grain stored and Egypt won't be ruined. That's a good plan. Like, that's a smart plan. If I'm Pharaoh, I'm like, ooh, thank God this guy was here, willing to help me willing to interpret my dream and to also give me advice that's practical and wise. That's what happens. Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge. Look at Joseph. This is great, right? He's been restored. Everything's cool now, right? No. There's still one more lesson to learn, and I think it's the most important one. We go on to read that exactly what Joseph predicted, what God used Joseph to warn Pharaoh about, comes to pass. And for those seven years of abundance, Joseph travels all throughout Egypt as Pharaoh's advisor, like his highest official, and he's overseeing the effort that Pharaoh has enacted on the advice of Joseph to take a fifth of all the grain they produce and just store it away. And they're doing it so they'll be provided for during the seven years of famine that they know are coming. And then we read, the famine comes just like God said it would through Joseph. And it's then that God, the author of Joseph's life, brings the story full circle. Okay. Joseph was in his late 30s to early 40s. He's got a new life. Got wife, got kids. 
He has been taken care of. But he's still haunted by his past journey. And we know he's haunted because, in what might be the craziest plot twist of this entire story, his brothers come back to him. Only now it's different. Now he's in control. Joseph's brothers come to Egypt to buy grain from Pharaoh, which means they have to deal with Joseph. And his brothers come before him, and they don't recognize him. And what do they do? Watch this. They bow before him. They bow before him, just like his dream told him they would. And this could be as much as 20 years after they sell him into slavery, and they bow. We know this messes with Joseph. We know this haunts Joseph. We know it because we're told he turned away from them and began to weep. He began to weep. Why is he crying? Why is he weeping? Could it be because this still hurts a little? Or a lot? That, that even though Joseph has trusted God, even though he has seen how God has been in control of every detail of his story, could it be that seeing his brothers, who he loved and who did these horrible things to him, still like stings a little? So now Joseph has all his brothers back. And he reveals himself, reveals his true identity. Remember me? His heart is breaking, and he reveals his identity to his brothers, and his brothers cannot believe what they are seeing. And then it happens. In a statement, not only forgiveness, but spiritual maturity, he tells his brothers that this was God's plan all along. Look at that. He says, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God, he has made me a father to Pharaoh and he's made me Lord of all of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Wow. Let me ask you this. Can, can you imagine 20 to 30 years of struggle? Some of you are like, yeah, I can. I can imagine that very easily. Thank you, thank you. Can you imagine 20 to 30 years of struggle, of injustice, of nightmare after nightmare only to end up facing the people who put you in that struggle and not only forgiving them, but having the ability to express what Joseph says here. Joseph says, you might have been the reason I had to go on this journey, but it was God's plan. Can you picture yourself having that perspective? Joseph can. He, he sees what's going on. He sees the chapters of his story, and he knows that God has done all of this, not just his good, but for the good of his people, the good of Israel. And that's the third and final lesson we can take from the story of Joseph, and it's this. Your story is not just for you. It is for the good of others. Your story, it's not just for you. It's for the good of others. Those times when you thought it was over, when you thought it was the end, 
that might have been the thing that rescued someone else. See, that's a hard pill to swallow for a lot of us, right? It is for me. I hate that. Because we are conditioned to desire. I am conditioned. You are conditioned. You were made to desire that everything that happens to us in life, good and bad, have a reason. A reason that only serves us and only makes things better for us. But it's just not always going to be this way. You ever been a cautionary tale for someone else? I was. Remember that story I was telling you earlier about kind of being forced out of a job and just feeling like the story was over? Years after that, right? Years after feeling like my life was over, I had coffee with someone who worked at that same place. And I'll never forget what they said. They said this. They said, Derek, seeing the pain you went through and seeing both the good and the bad and how you handled it was what I needed to witness so that I could succeed, so that I could succeed, so that I could prosper in that place. Crossman's, can I tell you something? Seriously? I hated that. <laughs> I was like, what? That's not fair. I was so mad, okay? I'm like, that is, that, what? No. I'm supposed to get payback. This hurtful season of life is supposed to end with everything being made right and life going back to normal and my story resolving perfectly. And I got to tell you, God had to really heal my heart of that. God had to heal my heart of that desire for the narrative to end to pay off the way I was thinking it would. He had to widen my perspective. He had to teach me to trust him enough to say, hey, not only is it okay, it is well with my soul that these bad things happened to me and it benefited people around me. Ooh, uh, don't know about that. I, I, that had to happen. It's okay. I can make peace with the fact that me going through a season of hurt and of abandonment served the purpose of teaching others how to trust God. See, Joseph says, hey, it's good that we're all together now and I forgive you, and I love you. But you meant this for evil, and look, God turned it to good. It was my destiny to serve this nation. It was my destiny to save them from ruin. And for that reason, I can say that the God I serve, the God who tells my story, is faithful. I got to tell you something, you might not get that robe back. That beautiful robe your brothers took from you, it's probably gone. That time you lost, like the years for a lot of you, the years that you've lost, they're gone. But your God is telling a story with your life. And he promises us something very specific. We, we read that promise a few weeks ago. It's the promise that God made to Abraham. Remember it, right? When God says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed huh, through you. So I want to ask you this. As you look back on the, on the story you've lived, the good times 
and the hard times, the parts that make you so angry and sad, that the ones you have trauma from, I have trauma. The people you've forgiven, but you can't quite forget what they did. Even more, as you look at the story you're living right now, the season you're walking through, the one that has you up late at night, the one that brings anxiety and makes the days feel so long, can you release that story to God? Can you release that story to God knowing that the God who is writing your story has not promised perfect resolution. He has not promised that everything will go back to normal or how it used to be. But he has promised you that you're going to be a blessing to someone. That your story, the way that God uses you, will bless someone else. All right. So I want everyone, but before we leave, to just take a moment. We're going to do two things. I want to invite you to, to stand up with me. And I want to invite you to close your eyes, actually. Will you, will you just take a moment as you stand to, to close your eyes? And I want you to take a moment, and I want you to think about your story. And I want us all to do something as we're thinking about it. And it's something that runs a little bit counter to how we're sort of engineered to think. We're engineered to think that our story is just for us, but I want you to dare for just a moment, can you dare for, for just a moment, take a risk and, and think for just a moment to dream about how your story can bless someone else? Remember, God is going to take care of you. In fact, I know this room is full of people who would say, I, I see my story and I know the details and I know that God worked everything out for my own good. But I want you to think about how that story can be a blessing to others. Who in your life thinks their story is over? Who thinks their story is coming to an end? Is there someone you're close with that you've seen struggling with something that you've been through? Is someone at your work suffering and hopeless and they're making the same mistake you did and they might not even know it yet? Parents, are your children going through hard times, through hard seasons that you went through and what can you do today that demonstrates to them that you have been there? How can your story be a blessing to others? How can God use your journey, use your story to be a blessing to the people around you?
Nailing my sin to a cross this time together. We thank you for what was spoken over us, Lord God, and we thank you so much for this service and for the word that you gave to us this morning. And all God's people said, amen. Guys, thank you for coming. We will see you next week. Have a great week.